Well, ho, 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 and all that. It's Rob here with the first ever Primary Sources special falling, appropriately enough, on Christmas Day. A day which, for many of our listeners, is likely cold and very Christmas-like, while for me, it's over 30 degrees and I'm just waiting for the daylight hours of torment to end. Anyway, moving along. Regular listeners will remember that I put the call out a month or so back for anyone interested to submit a response to a letter selected from a classic issue of Doctor Who magazine, just like a regular episode of Primary Sources, which ran for a couple of years on our feed if you've not heard it before, except in this episode, anyone could play. And a fast eps, a good eps, so without any further ado, let's replay the letter in question now. The magazine I have in front of me, you might even be able to hear the, the pages as I rustle it, is issue 238 from the 8th of May, 1996. And the letter runs. I have just heard a very nasty rumour to the effect that the Doctor is suddenly going to acquire an interest in sex in the new version of Doctor Who. I don't know if this is true, but I haven't been able to stop worrying about it since I heard it. Doctor Who fans are often mocked because of their devotion to such a silly, childish show. Perhaps there are some fans who genuinely want the program to become more grown up in the style of The X-Files or Star Trek The Next Generation. But the whole point about the character of the Doctor, surely, is that he is not like the heroes of all these other shows. They are intended to be believable and normal so that the audience can easily relate to them. The Doctor, by contrast, is magical, a sheer fantasy character, more akin to Santa Claus or Peter Pan, or, as Tom Baker once put it, a cross between the Pied Piper and Jesus Christ. He is not meant to behave in a normal, predictable way. The moment he starts to, the magic of the character, and therefore the magic of the series itself, will die. I realise that I'm preaching to the converted. My worry is that the new Doctor Who isn't going to be made by the converted, but by people who don't really care about the program, don't really see it as anything special, and who want it to be as much like other shows on American television as humanly possible. I imagine that this is a concern shared by most other fans too. The person ultimately responsible for Doctor Who isn't Philip Siegel. It's Alan Yentob. Doctor Who is still surely a BBC show, and some assurances ought to be given by the BBC that the program is in genuinely safe hands. And that's from D. Bell, Renfrewshire, Scotland. So there it is. There's uh, obviously a big theme in that letter, but you might want to take it in other places. Remember, this is from the 8th of May 1996, so it's certainly a different uh, time period we're talking about now. Lots happened since then. So there it is. Where will our responders take their thoughts on that letter? Let's start with Anthony Carroll, who said in his email, hopefully my audio for primary sources is attached, and also, love your work. So to that, I say two things, Anthony. Yes, the audio was attached, and also, thank you very much. Let's hear from Anthony. Hello, Anthony Carroll from Great Britain. All I would say is, no sex, please. We're British. Well, indeed. Now then, that might have been too short for some, so I'm breaking out my Anthony Carroll emergency backup, a reply from the other Anthony Carroll in Doctor Who fandom, who, believe it or not, actually knows the first Anthony, adding that they're still trying to figure out which one of them is the dandy, 
which is the clown. So here's what Anthony Mark II from Glasgow has to say on the topic. Hello, I'm also an Anthony Carroll, but probably not the one you were expecting. Now, I just want to give a shout out to Dee Bell from Brenfrewshire, as you may tell from my dulcet tones. I am indeed from Scotland too. Indeed, I helped to run the Glasgow Doctor Who Society, where we have many a member from Paisley, and when Dee Bell says Brenfrewshire, I assume Paisley, so if D-Bell wishes to relay their feelings 25 years later, they are more than welcome to join us in the pub sometime at one of our meetings. But, you know, as a younger fan, perhaps, uh, I want to maybe explore that idea that, yes, the Doctor typically is a sexless being, but not loveless. You know, Moffat's era has always pointed out exactly about this era as an issue of the sex-crazed zany adventures with Matt Smith snogging every mysterious woman in sight. But look at... For example, the husbands of River Song, we see in that episode River extolling her feelings for the Doctor, how it's not reciprocated. But then Capaldi just turns around and just says, hello, sweetie. And the warmth you feel in that, it's not something that's coming from the Doctor being in a bubble, away from people who have feelings, who have relations. The Doctor can't be in that bubble anymore. It is perhaps, yes, a sexless creature still as the Doctor is but not loveless. And that's something that I think is important now to the show and we can't escape. It's something, you know, D-Bell mentions about the worry that the Notways will take over the show and it will become a conventional television show just like any old other. But it kind of is important to have that. I mean, Russell T. Davis broadened the horizons of the show by making the conventional aspects of television, like a kitchen sink drama with, you know, Rose's family or Martha's family, and combining that with extraordinary elements of science fiction at the same time. So it just it broadened the appeal of the show and broadened the horizons of the show at the same time. And that's thanks to making sure that the Doctor is not in a bubble anymore, that the Doctor might be perhaps sexless, but not loveless. And that's something I think going forward is important to, to keep within the show. Ah, oh, yeah. Wouldn't it be great to have a beer with the guys from the Glasgow Doctor Who Society? I'd love that. Some good points there too regarding broadening the horizons of the show and the whole sexless versus loveless thing. I'd never thought about that before. Anyway, moving along now, we have Chris Marsh. Take it away, Chris. Hello, people of Who. Just in response to uh, the call-out for primary sources around romance and sex and so forth in Doctor Who over the years, I've, I've been watching Doctor Who now since probably 76, so quite a few years. The reality is a program like Doctor Who wouldn't have survived as long as it had if it hadn't been for for change. That's its greatest strength. We all know that. And I think romance works very well if if it's in a casual nature in Doctor Who and not overplayed. And the reason why I say that is you've got to remember that the Doctor is alien. He's, he's, he's very old. And having a relationship with a perennial, I should say an annular being, like a, a human, is, is very would be very short-lived. And, of course, that's very well done in School Reunion where the Doctor talks to Rose about the reason that he can't get involved. And I think that needs to be kept in perspective. But overall, I, I would say that it's fine in Doctor Who if there's a certain degree of fatuation between the Doctor and his companion or her, her companion. But it can never be overplayed, and it can only work if the characters are intrinsically compatible, and also the actors. And you see this a lot with Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen, for example, where that, that little casual byplay, as Tom Baker called it himself, 
it works so well. There's those little little wonderful looks to one another and, and, and just the friendship. But I think if you try, take it any further, it's it's very much... I think it takes away from the the discovery and this and this and I suppose the scientific nature of the of the show and the adventure of it and turns it into a soap opera. And I think Doctor Who never works well as a soap opera, never works well at all as a soap opera. And I think if you go down that path, you run into dead ends as well, and it becomes formulaic. And that's exactly what Doctor Who should never be. It's formulaic. I would say, having watched the program for a few decades now. I'm not adverse to a little bit of infatuation between the lead characters from time to time. I think that works well. And it worked very well with, with Tennant, for example, and Rose early on. It may have gone a wee bit too far, hard to say, but I do, I do think it works relatively well because it keeps the viewer interested. But it can never go too far because, I mean, you know yourself in the workplace. I mean, you know, you meet a lot of people that are, are interesting and exciting to to be around and talk to, but the, the reality is is that it doesn't always work to take it further because if you take it further, you can ruin the intensity of the working relationship. And it's, it's very similar in, in fiction in this respect. I think you can overplay romantic feelings between characters on screen simply to try and play some kind of service to the, to the audience that's watching it. I think you need to stick to the point, and I think that those interactions between characters... They can go to a certain level, as I said with Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen, that playful byplay between them two works really well, as it does with the Romana 2 character with Tom Baker. Now, we all know what was happening off screen there, of course, but there's some great scenes, and I'll probably draw the audience to scenes in State of Decay, for example, where they're sitting on the king and queen's chair in the rocket. They're discussing the nature of the plot, and I think one of them says, you know, you are wonderful. And you can actually see that little bit of infatuation between the two there. But it doesn't go too far. In the same way that when Romana eventually leaves, of course, you know, the Doctor says that, you know, you were the noblest Romana of all. And I think that's, that's where it really needs to be. Thank you. I like the analogy to workplaces there and how it can change the dynamic of who you're working with if infatuation goes too far. I think the same is true of a Doctor and their companion. Anyway, next up, Richard Smith from the Something Who podcast. I guess like many of the people who get back to you, the thing that struck me most about this letter was the concept of romance in Doctor Who. And I would imagine that when that letter was written, I probably had a similar view. I didn't feel like the Doctor was the sort of character who would have a traditional hero relationship with a woman. And it, and it felt perhaps like a reversion to a different type of hero in the show. And then I was also thinking, Paul McGann is the doctor who most of this stuff seems to happen to. I mean, in addition to the kiss with Grace at the end of the TV movie, he also says, I love you on several occasions to Charlie in the Big Finish episodes. But oddly, despite the enthusiasm of modern day shippers, you know, the fans who are enthusiastic about romantic relationships in modern Doctor Who, there's never really been an example, or even that much of a near miss. So, for instance, Eccleston playing the Ninth Doctor is more of a father figure to Rose. Tennant does fall in love, the Tenth Doctor, with Madame Pompadour, but the impossibility of a romance is indicated, and there's no real business to that relationship. He refuses to say I love you back to Rose when she mentions those words. He, he mopes for a year with Martha, and then he moves on, so it would seem, with Donna. 
Matt Smith's 11th Doctor has Amy launch herself at him, but he resists that. And he doesn't really seem all that interested in River most of the time either. And, and while Clara is a mystery, there doesn't seem to be much of a spark. Capaldi, obviously much older than either of his companions, Clara and Bill, and seems to reserve his, his interest for Missy and River. But again, there's, I guess there is, there's a real deep sense of affection towards River and, and, and the sense in which he wants to become close to the Missy character. But the, the ending of the episode, Husbands of River Song, is as close as we ever get to a sense of romance. And then, most recently, Whitaker as the 13th Doctor. I mean, there's there's some interest in Yaz, and that seems to be largely predicated on the enthusiasm of fans for that kind of a relationship. But it, it all seems very laboured. It comes quite late, and it's very quickly sidelined when it does arise. So, so yeah, despite, I suppose, the suggestion within the TV movie that the Doctor might become a romantic hero, and... Some examples, I suppose, of that kind of behaviour, it, it never really seems to have been a thing that we had to worry so much about. An interesting take there, Richard, because the modern Doctors, the ones we regard as being loved up all the time, actually aren't as loved up as we think when you start to break it down. So nicely done there. Coming up, Terry Hayward from Bourne, which I'm told is a small town in Lincolnshire in the UK. Wow, 1996, virtually the dark ages in Doctor Who years. But I do remember that fear of Doctor Who becoming an adult show with, say it quietly, S-E-X. The worry that that half-human side will take over and, dare I say it, we might see bonking in the TARDIS. I mean, does anyone actually use that word anymore? Probably not, and for very good reason. Because what we didn't realise was that the show was in safe hands. Whilst there was a cheesy sexless kiss... Paul McGann kept his sonic screwdriver in his pocket, as it were. And as it turned out, the Doctor becoming a Lothario of time and space was not something we had to worry about with the TV movie. And look how we've moved on since then. Hanky-panky in the TARDIS? Check, although the Doctor wasn't involved. Although it did mean a child was born with regeneration abilities, who then went on to become a little, well, familiar with the Time Lord. All off-screen and alluded to. And still the world hasn't imploded. The sky did not fall in. But there's still these unwritten rules, isn't there? If you want to see the Doctor exposed, well, I'm sure there's dark corners of the internet for you to enjoy. The Doctor is still our geek hero. Far too absorbed in the sciencey, techie stuff to be bothered by the more grubby end of human interactions. That's for the companions to mope about. Because we still don't want to see the Doctor doing the dirty. We don't even want to see the Doctor leaving the smallest room in the TARDIS and saying, I'd give that five. We don't actually want our heroes to be bothered with bodily needs and functions below the belt. It's not really what we watch it for. Our heroes, whether it's a Doctor or any other, you know, they're better than us. They don't have such human concerns. Having an interest in sex for the Doctor is more about having an interest in the mating habits of the Wirren, not about getting their own rocks off. Mind you, if the show had ever gone that way, then the kinkiest Doctor would most likely be the fifth. Because you know what they say, it's always the quiet ones. (laughs) I wonder if that Davo gag was aimed at me. Thank you, Terry. Some food for thought there on how some fans feel about the Doctor. 
even in an era where No Hanky Panky in the TARDIS is nowhere near as well defined as it used to be. Next up, Jeremy Bonwick, who is Frame of My Mind on Twitter, if you want to follow him there. He writes that he's very much looking forward to hearing all the responses and has provided one of his own, so let's hit play on the tape. First off, great show. Somehow I've managed to get past the fact that one of you is from Sydney and the other is a Carlton supporter. So this letter from DWM is from a year after I was born and safe to say that at the time I was not concerned with any of the discourse at that age. So I picked up on an angle that the author perceived the general opinion somehow was that sexuality had been seen to link to a grown-up or a modernist in the show. That's to say that introducing sexuality to the show somehow linked to being grown-up. And I dispute this, and perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, we can see how New Doctor Who, which does delve into sexuality, doesn't necessarily lead to a perceived grown-upness. And instead, that there's almost a kind of adolescent sniggering to some sort of truly adult themes and explorations going on. But first, what does it mean to make something grown up? For me, to be grown up in a storytelling sense is to be sophisticated and nuanced, to indulge in a subtlety and complications and deeper existential themes. I recently rewatched season 26 and couldn't help but feel this was the most sophisticated Doctor Who had ever been, narratively. And the four stories are thick with allegory and heavy themes of death, religion, creation and love. And yes, sexuality has its place, even before this letter was written. But not through the Doctor, but through the Companion. The sometimes subtle, sometimes overt developments of Ace as a sexual character was radical for the 80s and is still somewhat unrivaled in the history of Doctor Who, even within the modern era. Sexuality, though, is part of an overall nuanced story that is presented to the viewer, not as a single aspect that makes the entire story inherently modern. Now, in the new series, this exploration of sexuality doesn't necessarily lead to more sophisticated or grown-up storytelling. There's almost an adolescentness to the way in which particularly Smith's Doctor confronts sexuality in the series, with an almost kind of crude visual gagging and buffoonery in such episodes as A Good Man Goes to War or An Impossible Astronaut, where you get all the almost unforgivable running gag of Smith raising his sonic screwdriver whenever he comes face to face with a pretty lady. And River in this era doesn't help, and her character is laden and lumbered by sexual innuendo. And Smith is one of my favourite Doctors. But this aspect of the character and of the era demonstrates how the show, and perhaps more specifically Moffat, yes, I've seen coupling, treats sexuality. And Torchwood as a show is guilty of this as well. It has an adolescence which it indulges in sex and violence. It almost feels like it's doing these things to announce its adultness, which almost backfires in a way. Instead, the most adult, or perhaps most sophisticated, is Children of Earth which diverges slightly from previous series, almost gimmickry adultness, to present a truly chilling and at times harrowing tale. At the end of the day, sexuality has become a part of Doctor Who. We've come a long way from the character who said, you're a beautiful woman, probably. But just because sexuality has become a part of Doctor Who doesn't inherently make it more grown up. Thanks for the opportunity to be involved and looking forward to hearing what others have to say. Yeah, the idea of sexuality coming through the companion is an idea we've heard earlier in this episode, and we're hearing it again here. 
good call too on the way Torchwood used sexuality in an almost gimmicky way and on the whole it didn't make it more adult oh and I didn't miss the bants at the start of your piece Jeremy nicely played now look to round out our episode Neela's C from Northern Ireland has some thoughts bring us home Neela's I'm the doctor I'm a time lord I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casturbaris. I am 903 years old and I'm currently in 2022 listening back to that letter from 1996 and I'm laughing at it. And here's why. If I am flying around, saving the universe, being pretty sort of marvellous, I think it's only right that every so often I can get a wee snog off somebody. Don't you agree? Now, listen, in all seriousness, I'm laughing listening back to that letter because it just sums up the Doctor Who fan base and it kind of makes it look a bit tin pot. Now, I'm not a fan of companions fawning and chasing after the Doctor. I think you guys have said that on your show a few times as well and I'm in the same boat. I get so sick and tired of Rose. She does my head in. I'm not a fan of some of the things between Amy and the 11th Doctor. Albeit I do actually really like Amy, but a couple of scenes, I'm like, they're a bit unnecessary. But I don't mind occasionally if the Doctor does share a moment of intimacy with, like, a River Song or, you know, Queen Elizabeth I in The Day of the Doctor, for example. That doesn't bother me. So the letter there, like, you know, he's, the alarm bells are ringing there and the person that's wrote that letter is obviously not happy that the Eighth Doctor kissed Grace. Was it necessary in that film? No, I don't think it was personally. Does it bother me? Not really. Do I think that's the American influence there? Yes, absolutely. I do think because they were trying to expand it in America and whatnot then that that was the reason for it. But it is funny, you know, going down the line. Television does evolve, but a lot of Doctor Who fans can't accept that. When Russell T Davies went on to bring it back in 2005, you always knew watching series one that it was going to end up with the ninth Doctor kissing Rose. You knew it was going to happen. Albeit they did it in such a way where he's taking the time vortex out of Rose so it wasn't essentially a romantic kiss. But it was building up to that. You knew it was coming. Was there a problem with it? In my opinion, no, not at all. But... I think there's boundaries for it and sometimes it's been too much in the modern era. I do agree with that. But even in the classic series, when you look back, there's been hints of things like that in the past. The first Doctor, it's been hinted at with the fifth Doctor as well in Kinda. The third Doctor was talking in the Terror of the Otons about being at the club, a gentleman's club. Like, come on. So I don't really think it's a big deal, to be perfectly honest. I just think that letter is just your stereotypical Doctor Who fan that doesn't like change and you have to remember as well that if there was never any romance in Doctor Who we wouldn't have had human nature and the family of blood which many would argue is the greatest story in Doctor Who history like a lot of people would argue that it is absolutely fantastic it's certainly in in the upper echelons for me as well. I think it's one of the best stories ever. So if we went by that letter where, oh, we can't be having any romance in Doctor Who, we wouldn't have got that. So 
you know, there's peaks and troughs. Like, I personally think going by this day and age, I look at Doctor Who fandom in general, and I think Doctor Who fans go out of their way to whinge and gurn about anything and everything when they don't really need to. Like, look at the whole carry-on at the minute with Jodie Whittaker not being on the 2023 album, and there's people kicking off saying it's a conspiracy and it's not right that David Tennant should be on it. Like, come on, wise up. What a load of nonsense. I just think as a fan base, Doctor Who fans need to rein it in. Of course, everyone can be critical about, you know, storylines and what. I totally get that. Of course, we all have our favourites and whatnot. But when it goes way beyond that and it's just agenda setting and all, come on, folks, rein it in, wise up. Last but not least, I just want to say, guys, I really enjoy your show. I'm listening from Carrick Ferguson, Northern Ireland, and uh, I never miss it. I discovered it a few months ago, and I have to say it's it's one of my favourite podcasts going, and uh, I listen to it religiously now, so good work, and it's uh, it's great to be on it. Well, hopefully be on it. That's if I make the cut, but uh, yeah, uh, it's great stuff, and I always listen to your different takes and stuff. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. Just want to say thanks very much, and uh, happy Christmas, and happy new year. Cheers. Hmm, some interesting thoughts on fandom there, Neilers. I wonder if that will inspire any more emails into our show. Also, thanks for your kind words on what Dave and I do here. Well, folks, that wraps up our first Primary Sources special. What did you think of it? Has it inspired you to get involved next time we do one? I hope so. On a personal note, I was delighted to hear accents from Ireland and Scotland, where my family is immediately from. Dave, no doubt, enjoyed England being represented with his family background. And we had some Aussies in the mix too, which is great, given that's where we live and where we make the show from. It really is a small world. But where was North America? Come on, guys, you can speak underwater. Maybe we can coax some of you out next time we do a primary source special in the future. How about Easter? Anyway, I jest, and wherever you might be listening to us in the world, and I know we get some hits from what seem like some very un-Doctor Who-type locations around the place, like Romania and Spain, Puerto Rico, Sweden, the UAE, Thailand, Pakistan, just to name a few of the countries that pop up in our stats on Podbean. I hope you've been having a great time this holiday season, or are perhaps looking forward to New Year's Eve. Thanks, too, for being part of the Doctor Who show this year. And in years past, if you've been with us for a while, Dave and I love having our geeky chats, but knowing that a not insubstantial group of people around the globe are actually taking the time to listen to us makes it exciting and even more fun to do. So seriously, thank you. Don't be a stranger on the socials and we'll see you all in 2023.